Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. Today is, well, is uh, the day before Valentine's Day. I just saw a couple of guys get straight. Yeah, that wasn't a test. I'm going to assume you've got it all figured out. But what do we talk about the day before Valentine's Day? Well, I'll be honest with you. When I was making my preaching calendar and plan, I didn't take into account that tomorrow was Valentine's Day. But yet, just by pure coincidence, that the scripture that we're going to speak about today is about love. Must be on his mind. So today, we're going to do just that. So we're going to begin our journey this morning, and I want you to travel back with me just for a few years back, but we're going to go back into the last week of Jesus' life. That was a few years ago now. I don't think any of us were there for that, but... If we're going to travel back mentally into that time where he was his last week on earth, it's particularly it's a Tuesday, and he's outside of the temple in this particular Tuesday, teaching and preaching the good news of his father, and he's doing lesson after lesson after lesson. He's kind of going at it all day long. His uh, because you see Jesus knows that his days are getting numbered. He knows the numbers that are left on this earth. He entered Jerusalem this particular week on a Sunday to what seemed like a very large celebration and a party even. And they're chanting his name and they did all kinds of formalities that you would do for a king. It was quite the ordeal. But Jesus entered that gate that particular day knowing that that wouldn't last very long. It didn't get to his head. And so now Jesus, particularly on this Tuesday, is wasting no time teaching both truth and love over and over again every chance he gets. And you see, the current religious officials called the Pharisees, they really haven't been too impressed with Jesus' teachings up to this point. Now, it's not so much what he's teaching, not necessarily that the things he's saying is incorrect, But what they really hate, what they really don't like, is that he acts like that he has the authority over the law and not the other way around. So this type of thinking had to be stopped. This is what got Israel in trouble generations ago. Neglect of the law, thinking that you're over the law, over what God gave. And so for them it was time to attack It was time to have to stop this nonsense. But not physically. They didn't want to go in there, guns blazing, and physically hurt him. No, no, no. But certainly wanted to be public. We need to do it publicly. So they sent over one of their best lawyers, an expert in the law. This guy has studied his whole life to know the law inside and out, up and down. 
And so they sent him, and that was by design. That wasn't by accident that they sent this particular guy over to see Jesus on this particular Tuesday outside the temple. As you see, the Pharisees had just heard, just recently heard, that Jesus, through his teaching, has silenced the mouths of the Sadducees, who just challenged them. They were silenced. Now, of course, this is no surprise to the Pharisees, because you see, they hold their counterparts, the Sadducees, of, uh, how we say, lesser theological intelligence. So it would be easy to silence them. But nonetheless, let's send in the best we have, the best we got. Let's humiliate this uh, Jesus so that his followers can see that he's only human. And then let's get on back with our normal lives. And so this particular expert of the law knew exactly, exactly which question to ask. It's a question that has been asked within the Pharisee ranks for decades. There's a bunch of debate over it, over what the answer is, if there is even an answer. It's a question often used to sniff out any heretics among the ranks of the Pharisees to see if someone doesn't belong. All the more to ask Jesus these eight words. And so the crowd listening to Jesus on that particular day was very large. And as the expert made his way through the crowd, through the sea of shoulders, all the way to the front, he tries to get Jesus' attention. And so from the crowd, he shouts out, Teacher! Teacher! And with now the entire crowd turning their attention to this Pharisee, it was time to take Jesus down. And he asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Father, we pray right now for your word to be only spoken in truth and in love. God, I pray in this very spot, anything I say out of this mouth be only from your gospel, only from your truth, Lord. God, I pray that if I say anything incorrect, anything that is not, then I want to be corrected on the spot for only you, Lord, everyone to point to you and never me. And God, I pray that through the research and study of this message that we all walk out with a clear understanding of what it is that you desire for your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today is the third installment of the series, Our House, that I've been kind of going through over the last couple of weeks. It's an inner look into the makings of the church. That's what we've been diving into. So, so far, we have looked at the Great Commission. That was week one. We have looked at the power of community, which was last week. And this week, we're going to look into the church's greatest commandment from Jesus. Now, it is, a, I'm going to tell you, a very difficult thing to try and summarize in a very brief, concise manner what the commandments of the church are. Because if you look all throughout history, you will find that there is no shortage of commands in the entire Bible. Now, some of these commands that were given throughout the Old Testament 
were uh, served as temporary instructions for a specific group or a people for a specific time that they were going through. And then other commands were universal for all to follow. Now some required faith, these commands did, and others were just simple instructions uh, on daily life, such as your diets. There was quite a bit on that. Hygiene, there was quite a bit on that. Military service, there was a good bit on that. And then, of course, something even as like marriage, quite a bit on that. Now, the first thing, I don't know about you, but for me, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about commandments is the scene or the vision of Moses going up to Mount Sinai. Does this come ring a bell to you? And he's going up to the top there, and he's coming back down with what in his hands? The Ten Commandments, right? So when I hear commands or commandments, I think of Moses. The, the, really, the, the father of Israel here is just coming down from planting the, the laws right there in his hand is what I think about. And at least I will tell you that the Ten Commandments that were given to him that night or that day on the mountain was at least a start for a new generation of Jews who have never lived free outside of Egypt. They've never had their own land, their own, own place to call home. They never had the, the freedom to practice their own faith even. But on this day, Moses came down from the mountain and said, Here, our God says this. Here, people, listen. And then we read scripture. They keep going, and it says that they wandered around the desert for a long time. And they, it would seem like they didn't have a GPS. And they just kept wandering around the desert over and over again. But during that time, God was doing something. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't because they were lost. He was in the works of something else. And we can see in Scripture what that was. As they were wandering around, God continued over and over to deliver more commands and more laws to the people of Israel. He wasn't finished yet. Tim was a good start, but there needed to be more. And as he put down on paper, then the people of Israel started to write them down, to pin down the commands that God was giving through Moses to the people. And in fact, that this, this, these laws, these commands can still be read today. They were pinned down and passed from generation to generation so that they can honor God when they get to the new promised land. They wanted to bring honor to him, so they wrote them down. And then they passed it down to their generation and their generation. And you and I today can see it in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, once it was said and done, of course, once all the laws were written down, it started off as an easy tent. Don't get me wrong. That's, those are at least uh, maybe easy to remember. But once it was done, the official laws grew from 10 to 613 laws in Israel. Now, these 613 laws have become known now, I'm not a very good at speaking Hebrew. I'm going to put that preference there right now. But they are known as the Teriyah Mitzvah. I think that's how I pronounce it. Meaning 613 commands. Pretty original. That's what it means, 613 commands. However, they would be given a nickname, really shared, passed down from history to history. They would be often and more commonly referred to as the Law of Moses. Now, even though the laws were not given by Moses directly, his name will forever be
be associated with the laws themselves because of his leadership, because of what God asked him to do at that time. The laws would be forever written with his name. And so it was, the laws were passed down from generation to generation, from priest to priest. And over time, there would be generations, we can read about this, who honored God, who honored the, the laws and brought them to life and did what they were commanded to do, and the times of Israel flourished. And then we can read in times where there were generations who abandoned the laws, turned their back on God, turned their back on the actual law itself. And some of those generations did it by choice. And there were others, though, who did it because they were enslaved and didn't have the freedom to practice them. But we can read this throughout history. But on this day, on this particular day, outside the temple with Jesus teaching, the 613 laws are being enforced by the Pharisees. They're alive and they're well. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are doing with them, enforcing them like police. They're making sure that they are, Israel is staying true to what the scriptures have to say. And it is true at this particular time when Jesus was out in the temple. It's true that, that Israel is currently under Roman rule. They are not free. They can't do as they please. But they're not slaves. Instead, they're known as subjects under occupation of Rome. And the Romans have been, shall you say, diplomatic. And they've allowed the Jews to continue their tradition as long as it benefits or at least doesn't get in the way of Rome when they practice their silly laws. So here we are. The Pharisees have spent a great deal, a great deal of time keeping the law alive, making sure everyone is educated and following them for generations to come. And I want to preface this by saying that oftentimes in our storytelling, in our faith, on our reflection back, we view the Pharisees as the bad guys, as the enemies of Jesus. I want to just preface by saying that the Pharisees, to the best of their knowledge, were keeping the laws alive. Their execution of it may not have been exactly the best way to do it, but I know some churches that also may fall in that same boat. We know the law is the truth, and maybe we struggle with the love part a little bit. But the Pharisees took the law and wanted Israel to follow them. This is our God. These are his commands. And so the Pharisee now, with this history of the law, this brief, quick history of where they came from and how many there are, this particular Pharisee is now asking Jesus in front of the crowd to pick which one of the 613 laws is the greatest. That's literally what he's asking. It's a trick question. But, who knows? Maybe Jesus will fall for it. 
so that we could all together as a large crowd with the Pharisees chanting the way can call him a heretic and get this nonsense out of the way. Can't pick one. They're, go- they're all from God. They're from the Father. We can't pick one law. And anyone in that crowd would know how many there are. But if it was me in the crowd on that particular day, I would be thinking, which one is he going to pick? I would, I would want to know. If I was following a devout, I don't know which one. Maybe, uh, maybe he'll keep it simple and he'll pick law number one, which states to know there is a God. Or perhaps he'll go with number 86 in the, in the law, which is to circumcise every male on the eighth day. Or maybe, maybe it's law number 332, which states... A blemished priest must not enter the temple. But Jesus didn't have to take a moment when the question was asked to him. He didn't say, let me go and reflect and pray. He knew already the right answer. The expert you see in this particular crowd on this day didn't take into account that there was a reason There was a purpose, a reason that Jesus spoke boldly about the law. That that he, this Pharisee right now in this crowd, in Matthew, is face to face with the very author of the law itself. That Jesus was there when God gave them to Moses on Mount Sinai. He was there when they were pinned in the desert, wandering around. He was there when Israel honored them through the generations. He was there when they abandoned them. And he was there, he's here right now, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them in this very moment. And he will do so in just a few short days. And he said, you want to know what the greatest law is? You want to know what my father's intentions were with the law? Because I'm going to tell you now, you're making it too hard. And Jesus replies, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your mind. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says with great confidence, staring right at the Pharisee in this crowd, with great confidence, he says that everything, everything found in the scriptures, from the law books all the way to the prophets, hang on these two commands. Everything. Let me help you remember your law teaching class. Love God and love others. And then the scripture says that all of a sudden, the Pharisee, this smart expert of the law Pharisee, found himself in the same condition of his earlier counterpart, the Sadducee. Silence. For he had no response. Because you see, it's one thing to know the law, to study the law, can become familiar with it, with even in the New Testament, but even the New, to know what Jesus did, to know what the cross represents, to know that he was resurrected from the dead. It's one thing to know. But I'm going to tell you, when I read this scripture and I looked at this piece, it's a completely different thing to be the one who have written it. For he has authority over it. But 
what does that actually mean? What does it mean to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Now today, we read, you and I read this scripture in English. Let me look at this. At least that's what I did when I sat down to study uh, my Bible. It was in English, thank goodness, so I could read it. But this conversation would have taken place more likely in Aramaic or Hebrew, not in English. And then it was written in Greek. So now the scriptures are in Greek. It was then translated to Latin, then to German, then to English. Now, when we read it in our language, in English, you and I, the scripture says to love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind. But what if, what if we went back to the actual original Greek and read what they read? What would it say? It would say, Agape, the Lord your God, with all your cardia, with all your soche, and with all your dianoia. Now, you may be thinking that the captain's trying to show that he's smart. I assure you I'm not. I looked that up. I don't know Greek. But those will be the exact words that was used in this scripture in Greek. And you also may be thinking, now, all it is is the English words for heart, soul, and mind in Greek. But they're not. That's what's interesting. Because they're not the same words. When it was translated into English, heart, soul, and mind were indeed the best words in our language to use. And they still are, by the way. They're not wrong. But in English, we use analogy and metaphor to describe something that is hard to explain, feel, or touch. So we say, we use quite a bit of analogy and metaphor even throughout the Bible, so that us English people can understand it. But when I say in this room to love God with your heart, you all know what I'm referring to. You know what I'm not saying is to go and love God with your physical organ heart, with all that you can? And the answer is because we know that our organ has no feelings, has no comprehension. It can't make a decision for... So when I say love the glory of God with your heart, you understand what I mean. But the Greeks were a little more literal, as most Eastern cultures are. In fact, I recall back, I think it was 2013, I took a trip to India. That's the, let me just tell you, the exact axis, complete opposite of the world from Texas. And I was there representing the Texas division. And as India West was our partner in missions. So we were assisting them and helping them and whatever we can do to continue your missions in India. And I'm going to tell you, after we landed, it did not take me long to realize that Eastern culture, which would be my first time that I was ever exposed to it in the homeland, not necessarily in America, but the homeland, that I was exposed to that, it was, that it is completely different than Western culture. Not, not a little different. Completely different. Not better, not worse, just is. It's the way the world is. 
So, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I remember when we would see maybe a problem or something that needed a solution or a way to be solved, that they would put their minds together and the way that they got to the final destination was never the same way a Westerner would get there. Or even that the solution was even the same solution. But they would say, that's good. And we would say, are you, well, okay. And we would do it and they'd go, what, what are you doing? It just, it was, that's how it was. And us Americans like to use metaphors and analogies Sarcasm, we like that over here. And sayings. We have all these, these sayings, especially if you grew up in Texas and you're trying to explain things about an old country dog that runs out well. You know, anyway, you got sayings. I want to tell you, these did not translate. They did not translate. I would try my best. I'm telling you, I would try my best to make my host officers laugh. I assure you, they did not find me funny. <laughs> I assure you, it, I don't recall one laughter the whole trip I was there. American sarcasm is a foreign tongue. They don't get it. After the joke, you're waiting for, the, for them to laugh, and all you hear is silence. That must be how a stand-up comic feels when a joke doesn't do so well. And in fact, what I found is instead of laughing, they would often be doing the literal thing that I was just joking about, because they took it literally. A missionary once told me that they, they knew when they made it, when they, when, they, when they made it to the foreign, to the land that they were at, was when they accepted the culture and the culture accepted them was when they could tell a joke in that culture and they laughed. Is when they felt like we made it. Now, what I did find in India, this was, you know, there were things that were different, but there were, there were, there were things that were the same. What I did find was that even though we may say it differently, the act of showing love was exactly the same. Immediately, they would know love. It was there. We didn't have to say the same language, to be honest with you. A touch, a hug, a meal, a prayer, they knew it. So that goes back to what does the Greek say? What does it say? What does it actually mean? See, Greek uses cardia. So, okay, and anoia. These are the words it uses in this language. But when it's translated into English, when we take the English words, the literal Greek translation, it reads, love the Lord your God with all your character and with all your emotions and with all your understanding. Or as we put it, your heart, your soul, and your mind. And when you fully love God, when you fully love Him, when you give Him your character, He will give you His. That He will be supreme over your emotions. Even if you are furious and, and, and quickly searching for the keyboard to respond. And He will without a doubt. Give us peace when our understanding stops.
I'm going to say that there are times in our lives where we don't understand. We don't know what's next. We can't comprehend why. And we have to, as believers, have to lean on the fact that we love the Lord our God with our mind, our understanding. For where our understanding stops, His will carry us through. And if we do these things, if we love God with these things, when we are fully expressing our love to God, putting that into practice, here's what happens. The cup that each of us have, our heart, our soul, and our mind will never be left empty. It will start immediately to be filled with grace, with hope, and with love. And it will be filled with salvation. Our cup will get so full, ourselves will be so full with this, this, this love from God that it will start to overflow. And this is exactly what happens when you love God. Your love starts to overflow. And here's the thing. You see, the Pharisee only asked for one command. They always said, what's the greatest one? And Jesus responded with two. Love God. And the second command is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what I've found. Is that when we put our focus on the loving God, with our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our cup begins to be filled with his spiritual love, his spiritual understanding, his spiritual peace, and it gets to be filled and filled and filled. And once it starts to overflow, I have discovered that the second command is found in the overflow when it spills out into others. To love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you know what yourself is? Your cup is full flowing out into others. And if your cup is empty, I assure you, others know. So I ask this question. Do you want the church to do better? You see, we're talking about our house, right? We're talking about us today. What's this yeah, we looked at the commission. We know, okay, we're, we're called by God to go and make disciples of all nations. We know that, that we're looking at our community there, being together. Because when we have a call out, a commission to go and make disciples, it's not enough to just make them. They come into community with us. And then we have a command to love God. You see, this is a continually thing. This is not a calendar on this day, but it's a continual thing that we're constantly pouring our love into God, pouring our love into others. So do you want the church to do better? You want the church to be better? Well, hear me tell you how. That it starts from the inside. It starts with your cup. And so this morning, I'm going to ask this question. How is your cup? 
How is it? We all have one. Even my kids have one, and I can tell when theirs is full or empty. But we all have a cup. Is it partially filled? Is it full? Is it empty? And I just want to say that if your cup is full, if you have experienced the love of Jesus and that you are constantly in that relationship where you're giving him that type of love, I want to say that that's what we strive for. We want full cups. It can be done. It can happen. That you have found the source of living water. If you can't find it, then there's no reason to preach it. It's real. It can be found and it can be yours. And right now, if you are experiencing that full cup, you know without a doubt that you're in the presence of God throughout your entire life. That you haven't been thirsty in a long time. This is good. But now, go and love your neighbor as yourself. But maybe your cup is partially full. I can feel it a little full. Maybe it's halfway up or just getting started. It's just partially full. That you love God part of the time. But with only maybe certain parts. Maybe it's your emotions that get the best of you. That your first response is always maybe anger when something doesn't go your way. Or maybe it's depression. When you feel a little just alone. You're not angry, you're not anything, maybe. You're just there. And I want to tell you to look up. Because He is greater than our emotions. He is greater than your anger, than your depression, than your sadness. He's greater than your illness through the physical pain that you're experiencing. He is greater than this. And I will tell you that Satan will want you to keep looking down. He's going to want you to ignore this. He's going to want you to take your eyes off of him. If he can keep you in this state, in this stage of only having a partial cup, then he's satisfied. But God is saying, I can give you more. I can fill you more. I can remove what's inside of your head now. I can take those thoughts away from you. That this partial cup is not meant to be where we live. He is everlasting. And then right now, I know there's got to be someone whose cup is completely empty. There's nothing in it nothing in it. And I know you're tired. I know you're tired. There is rest. There is nourishment. There is hope. There is a way out. Christ.
thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.